So good morning, everybody. Great to be in worship with you. Uh, We are kicking off a new series today. It's called Married or Single, Exposing the Myth and Miracle of Intimacy. And before we dive in to this applicable to all of us topic, let's just take a moment to pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are always wooing us inviting us, the one who's initiating with us and drawing us to yourself. Thank you for the daily invitations to enter more deeply into your love. And God, this morning we all come from different places, some of us sad and grieving with heavy hearts, some of us full of joy and thanksgiving and celebration. There's some fear, some anxiety in the room. And so, God, we take a moment to do as your word instructs us, and we cast our cares upon you because we know that you care for us. Thank you for your love, for your grace, and for your ongoing initiation in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning we are going to dive into this topic by asking the question, what is godly love? What is godly love? And kind of to bookend the morning message, we're going to talk about some myths about godly love and some of the miracles of godly love. Um, So we're going to start with the myths. And I think uh, one of the greatest myths about love in general, and this can sneak into uh, godly love, uh, the myth is this, that love follows the heart. Everywhere you look... Disney, book, shows, magazines, true love follows the heart. Probably this is um, no greater on display than in ABC's The Bachelor, (laughs) where the fallacy of following one's heart regarding love is in full display. Um, You probably have seen it, but if you haven't, the foundational premise of the whole show is uh, just repeatedly emphasizing Get out of your head and follow your heart regarding love. So we're going to talk about the myth of that, but just in case you're not convinced um, and to have a little laugh together this morning, I want to show you a clip from The Bachelor. So let's take a look. Katie. Man. Most definitely, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Chris, I need to talk to you real quick. Ladies, you'll excuse us. I forgot her name. I wasn't the girl I wanted to give it to. It's the Karen. I said Katie. 
frozen for good, Isaac. We gotta do that again. Somehow we gotta do that again. Ladies, our apologies for making you wait tonight, but uh, we've ended up facing something we've never run into before. So, uh, Jesse has something to say to you. Ladies, I'm sorry for, for taking that time. Um, I'm very embarrassed to tell you this. Katie, I accidentally called out the wrong name, but I would like to extend to you the option of staying. I'll stay and see how things go, sure. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> this is now the final rose tonight. <laughs> when you're ready. <laughs> Karen. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Karen, I'm so sorry. No, that's all right. I'm just happy. <laughs> Karen, will you please accept this rose? Absolutely, I will. Thank, Thank you. So much. you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just painful. I'm so, I forgot your name. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, uh, first myth of godly love is that godly love follows the heart. I would suggest that instead, godly love follows the spirit. Certainly our hearts are a part of the interconnected way in which God has made us, but godly love follows the spirit, which means Submitting to God's word, seeking wise counsel, knowing her name. <laughs> so, first myth, godly love follows the heart. No, godly love follows the spirit. Second myth, godly love is guarded. And here's what I mean by that. We've all been hurt. And sometimes, particularly for followers of God in the way of Jesus, when you've been hurt, you can become guarded. And that guardedness, can masquerade around as wisdom. But godly love is not guarded. Godly love is wise. Throughout the book of Proverbs, you read about lady wisdom. You read about wisdom, and she's referred to as a woman. So in Proverbs 3, blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Okay, if wisdom is so important, what is it? And how do we employ it in relationships? I think Henry Cloud's work on the three types of people, the wise, the foolish, and the evil, is very helpful here. Because when it comes to relationships, we can ask ourselves, am I being wise? Is the person I'm interacting with operating out of wisdom? Or am I being a fool? Are they being a fool? Am I in a situation that is evil? So he talks about it this way. Throughout the Bible, you see three different kinds of people spoken of, wise people. And a person who's wise, here's the differentiating characteristic. When the light, when the truth, when illumination comes into their lives, they receive it. They change course because of it. The wise person responds to the truth, to the light. Now, the fool 
when the light comes, when the truth comes, when the illumination comes, the fool will minimize, will deflect, will ignore. The fool will blame. The fool will shame and play the victim. But the fool will not change course when the truth comes, when the light shines. They don't change. And the Bible says that is foolishness. And then there's a third category, and I think it's important that we talk about it. That's the evil person. The evil person is bent on destruction. They're bent on harm. This is why when someone finds themselves in a domestic violence situation, they should not go to marital counseling until the abuser has gone to like a batterer's intervention program. Because marital counseling is dependent on two people who are seeking to resolve. If you're in relationship with someone who is seeking to harm, you need to be able to see that. So wisdom starts with, number one, where am I? Am I in a place of wisdom? Am I operating as a fool? Am I bent on destroying? And who am I relating with? Is this a person of wisdom? Is this someone who is in a place of foolishness? Or is this someone bent on harm? Godly love is not guarded. It is rather wise. The third myth is that godly love feels like love. The truth is, godly love feels like sacrifice. When the scriptures talk about love, here's our roadmap. This would be like a picture of Christian marriage, Christian intimacy. This is how we've come to know love. This is what love is. That Jesus laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So Godly love doesn't always feel like love. It often feels like sacrifice. Here's what often happens in relationships is every single person, married or single, divorced, remarried, every single person carries within themselves like an invisible jar. And inside that invisible jar inside of you are wishes, hopes, and dreams. Wishes, hopes, and dreams. We all have wishes, hopes, and dreams related to things like, I hope to be respected. Like, I hope she will think I have what it takes. I hope to be cherished. I hope that I won't be in competition for his hobby or his work or his friends. Some of the wishes, hopes, and dreams are simple, simple, not simple to figure out, but simple like whether or not, you know, who's going to do the grocery shopping, what the roles are going to look like, where does family fit into life. Everybody has this invisible jar inside of them of wishes, hopes, and dreams. Here is where we go wrong. Each of us has these, and 
Then we meet someone, whether that is a close friend or a significant other, and we get this other jar out, and it's called expectations. And we just dump all our wishes, hopes, and dreams into the expectations jar, and then we go and we just hand it to our significant other. Do you know what that feels like to the other person? It feels like pressure. It just feels like pressure to them. Now, here's the other problem with taking our wishes, hopes, and dreams, dumping them in the expectation jar, and then handing the expectation jar over. That creates a debt-debtor relationship with your most intimate relationships. So, for example, I wish and hope to be cherished. Legitimate, right? When I take that and I dump that in the expectation jar and I say to Tim, uh, you got to buy me flowers every holiday. You owe me. I just created a debt-debtor dynamic in our relationship. So even when he brings me flowers, how thankful am I really going to be? Because I felt he owed me that. I mean, when someone pays you what they owe you anyway, how much gratitude do you show? How thankful are you for that? Not very, because it's just like, well, you owed me that. I expected that. Do you know what the happiest couples do? The happiest couples are people who go, they, they enter the relationship. It's so counterintuitive, but they, they go like, both of them say to the other, like, I owe you everything and I expect nothing. So then when he has made her lunch every single day for 25 years. Do you know what she says? Thank you. Like, I didn't, you didn't have to do that. You don't owe me that, even though you've been doing it every single day for 25 years. You don't owe me that. I didn't expect that. Thank you so, I'm so grateful you made my lunch today. Once the expectation jar is filled and handed off, the debt-debtor relationship is placed, that you owe me dynamic is in play. And the problem with that is that love needs margin. Margin creates trust, and you need trust to have intimacy. Because here's the thing, intimacy is when you say to somebody, I trust you enough, you are safe, I trust you enough that I can entrust all of me to you, that's intimacy. But you can't have that without trust. And you can't have that with margin. And of course, of course, there are times when what you experience and what you expect, you know, there's that gap. But you know what the happiest of couples do? When there's that gap, like he didn't show up, why didn't he show up when he said he'd show up? Do you know what they do, the, their habit is? Their habit is to assume the best, not the worst. Their habit with each other is to believe the best. It must have been caught up in traffic. Must have not, oh, here we go again. Here we go. Not that debt, debt, or you owe me, now you failed me again thing, but there's believing the best rather than assuming the worst. So godly love looks like sacrifice, which means... You might be thinking, like, okay, Susie, so what, um, 
what are we supposed to do with the wishes, hopes, and dreams? Just like throw them out the window like they don't matter? Just stuff them, minimize them? Uh, I don't really have any. Not at all. Like for all of us in this room, we should, number one, know what they are. If you're single, if you're single again, know what they are and seek to connect with and get together with people with whom you share wishes, hopes, and dreams. And if you're in a significant relationship, I don't leave this message and be like, did you hear what she said? Instead, <laughs> maybe say, what are your wishes, hopes, and dreams? I'd love to know what they are. Now, granted, this takes some time and work. Your answer today might be like, the answer you receive today might just be like, I don't know, I want to eat some wings during the game. But it's important to know what your wishes, hopes, and dreams are. But keep them in this jar. Don't dump them in there. And when you know what they are, take those longings before God in prayer. Praying the Psalms is such a practical way to take our longings and unmet longings before God in prayer where we can experience transformation. This starts with you, not your significant other. It's taking those wishes, hopes, and dreams before God in prayer. And I don't mean formal prayers. I do not mean calculated prayers. I mean honest prayers, which is why the Psalms is such a guidebook for us. Honest prayers have the potential to release peace and power and the presence of God in your life. And that changes everything. So it starts with you, not minimizing these, not just throwing these out the window. But what are they? Taking them to God and asking the people you care about, what are yours? And caring to listen and to know. And keeping them out of this bucket. And then it's that work of two people coming together, doing what the Bible talks about as mutual submission. What is that? Mutual submission is like both people are running to the back of the line. It's like a submission competition where both people are like, they're like, not you owe me, but because of what Christ did for me, I want to lay down my life for you. Like, both people enter the relationship saying, like, I, wanna, I just want to owe you everything, but I don't expect anything in return. And both people are doing that. And that is what the Bible would paint as this beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church and what intimate relationships ought to look like. R.C. Sproul says this, in the New Testament, love is more of a verb than a noun. It has more to do with acting than with feeling. 
the call to love is not so much a call to a certain state of feeling as it is to a quality of action. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he talks about love, says love is patient and it is kind. It says all the things, he says all the things love doesn't do. It doesn't boast. It doesn't envy. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is nice to be around. It always protects, hopes, trusts, perseveres. Love is more of a verb than a noun. This is not just for married relationships. This is true for singles among committed friendships. In Ruth Haley Barton's book, Pursuing God's Will Together, she talks about how monastic communities will commit to their community for life. And the reason they do that is they believe that relational and spiritual formation happens when we are formed in the rhythms of community. The idea of a rhythm is that there will be highs and there will be lows, and sometimes it is in the lows that intimate love is forged. So monastic communities commit to their communities for life. So we've talked about some of the myths. Let's talk about the miracle side. Now, let's not take that word lightly. When I say miracle, I mean not possible, not possible apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The first one is godly love forgives. Now, I recently did a whole message on forgiveness. So for today, I just want to bring back a quote from Henry Nouwen, who said this, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour increasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. Godly love forgives. It's not the same as changing the story. It's not the same as accepting a different version of the story. But godly love forgives. Second miracle is godly love washes feet serves. It's a race to the back of the line. I'm going to try to outdo you in self-denial. I'm going to be the first to go wash the dishes, change the kids' clothes, hop in the car and get those, whatever it may be. When you read the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, what amazes me every time is that Judas is present. Judas, the one who he knew would betray him. And he is present, but godly love serves anyway, even when the disciples gave all these reasons for Jesus to give up on them. I want to show you a little video. This video has received over 11 million views. And I'm going to show this to you, um, but with the caveat that this video is in no way a prescription of what I think ought to be in every relationship, uh, but it is a picture of redemption. And no matter where you find yourself, we've all experienced pain. 
I want you to be open to redemption. And so this is a picture of that. Um, this uh, teenage kid, Jeffrey, wrote this. My parents, this was on Twitter, and then he posted the video along with it. He said this, my parents were married for more than 20 years, divorced, fought a lot, went to work on themselves. Years later, they started dating, and as of yesterday, this happened. Congrats, Mom and Dad. True love always finds its way back around. Let's take a look. about you but the first few times I watched that it's like I was just crying along with her because I think every single one of us has experienced the ripping right the tearing of relationships we've experienced the pain of that you don't have to have been through what they've been through, though we don't even know. We've all experienced that. And the thing is, is every single time you show up to forgive, to serve, every time you show up for your friends when it's inconvenient to you, when you stay, when you remain committed to a child, when you give yourself like the monastic communities to a group of people for life, here's what you're doing. You're taking like this fabric, right? And you're making a stitch. And then you're making another stitch. And you're like using that needle and that thread and you're stitching it back together. And I think it resonates with us so deeply because we've all experienced relational brokenness in some form or fashion. 
And following God in the way of Jesus is coming to understand what real love looks like. And it's not, a, it's not the myth of true love follows his heart. And it's not true love is guarded. And it's not these myths of our culture surrounding love. No. You want to know what love feels like? It feels like sacrifice. You want to know what love feels like? It feels like breaking bread together. Like showing up over and over and over again. To the people on your home team. I was so moved this week, just coming to this building like three different times. So on Thursday, Charlie and I meet to kind of talk through the Sunday. And uh, we're sitting at the computer talking and morning edition, this group, intergenerational group of women shows up. And they're right there in the parlor behind us. And they're talking and they're laughing and they're just beginning, you know, and many continuing to do life together. What are they doing? They're stitching a thread. They're committing and intertwining their lives together in such a way that like remakes the broken fabric of this world and of our lives. And then Saturday morning, I walk over, the parking lot is packed with all these cars because the AA group is meeting. What are they doing? They're showing up. They're taking that needle and thread. And they're making stitches in the broken fabric that is this world and is our lives. And then last night I'm here and the babies and tots groups is in there. All these families. And they're laughing and getting to know each other and beginning to read this book together. And again, what are they doing? They're breaking bread together. That's what godly love does. Jesus, the Son of Man, in Luke 7 it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That really just means hanging out, spending time repeatedly. Jesus ate and drank at such regularity with people that the religious leaders accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. So it's like if the Roman IRS were to audit his business credit card statement, they would have found a whole lot of charges to the local pub and Panera and Starbucks because he hung out with people just that much. And then the early church, they modeled themselves after that. Breaking bread together in one another's homes. We need both proximity in relationships. You know, breaking bread is spending time together. And then we also need, you know, longevity we need to recognize that deep, godly intimacy happens sometimes over years of cultivation. So we started this message with The Bachelor, sort of a picture of the myth. And I want to end this message with a short clip about the longest married couple. It's sort of a picture of the miracle as we come to the table. And uh, so let's take a look as we close. We're going. Behind every great man on our way is a greater we're woman, the so camera. the saying goes. But these days, I gotta hang on. It's Dale who's the engine behind Alice's wheelchair. Better get your legs off. 
The Rockies are each 99 years old. They met just after the turn of the last century as kids in the small town of Hemingford, Nebraska. I didn't pay much attention to him, <laughs> really. Did you pay attention to her? Not especially. <laughs> but by the time high school rolled around, Dale looking suave and Alice the picture of loveliness, things had changed a bit. Do you remember what your first date was? What you guys did? Went out on the hill and parked and looked at the town. You went and parked on your first date? Oh, yes. Through <laughs> <laughs> Christ our Lord, amen. Alice was a good Catholic girl, so no kissing and telling here. Suffice it to say that as soon as Dale turned 18, he popped the question. How did you propose? I asked her if she had any money. <laughs> they were married December 29th, 1933. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers were appearing in their very first movie together. FDR was in his first term as president, and Prohibition was just winding down. Had Prohibition been repealed in time for you guys to go buy a bottle of champagne somewhere? We couldn't afford that. No. <laughs> Maybe a bottle of pop. <laughs> yeah. By 1958, Dale and Alice were already toasting 25 years together. They were still laughing after 40 years in 1973. Pretty good looking couple. They've yes. now made it 81 years. Is there a, a secret to how you guys have stayed together for so uh -huh. long? What's that? I always let him have my way. <laughs> you always let him have your way. Very good. <laughs> this year's longest married couple. It's such an achievement, the faith-based group Worldwide Marriage Encounter crowned the Rockies the longest married couple of 2015. Great. Yay. Rockies were picked from nearly 400 married couples, most nominated by friends and family. 1939, 75 years. Dick and Diane Baumbach yes. thought their marriage of 48 years was long, until they found it, the longest marriage project, five years ago. When we saw 83 years, 79 years, it was wow. They don't claim the honor is official, but they hope couples like Dale and Alice serve as a reminder of what a lifelong commitment can look like. Is there a common thread that runs through marriages that last seven and eight decades? Yes. Yes. What's that? They do things together, enjoying things together, by compromising and having patience with each other, I think. Well, 11. Dale and Alice have five sons, including Tom, now 76. Two for two. He and his well, wife, Sandy, married 50 years, by the way, visit Dale and Alice at this skilled care facility outside of Kansas City. This has been a busy day. Alice's health demanded she come here, but Dale didn't have to. He got himself admitted because being together turned out to be the best medicine of all. Once Dale came, you know, and got moved in, Alice's, not only her spirits, but her health just improved. I mean, they need to be together. And maybe in the end, that need for another person is the real secret of wedded bliss. What a wonderful ride we've had. After 81 years, Dale and Alice don't want for much, except more time hand in hand. It does sound like a long time, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it has been a good long time. <laughs>